0: 1 Corinthians chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, one Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some... So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will neither eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. Amen. Amen. As we've studied this morning in Sunday school, we come to a text of scripture that might seem on its surface very specific, very unique, sort of difficult to draw out applications for today, but God's word is sufficient. Let me read you from Genesis chapter 4. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The haunting and heartless words of Cain... Have echoed through the ages. Am I my brother's keeper? Didn't have any concern for him. And in like question, in similar sense, as Christians, those who have brothers and sisters in the family of God, what are our obligations to one another? As it's been so much a part of our study through 1 Corinthians so far, this text is teaching us what life is like under grace. Everything's changed now. If you're a Christian, a whole different world for you. Glory be to God. But it is a life under grace that is no longer lived unto ourselves, but it is now life in the body. It is body life. One overarching principle from this text is this, love builds up. Love builds up. There is a potency in the gospel demonstrated by Christian love that develops this on top of this foundation of Christ, not wood, hay, and stubble that can be burnt up, but lasting things not built on the means of rhetoric and smarts and intellect and creeds, and not built on external religion and tradition, but built on the means and by the power of God. And one of those is that love builds up. But the material of pride, the material of knowledge itself, divorced from love, it simply puffs up. It simply puffs up and it causes problems within the body. Turn your attention to verses 1 through 3 here as we examine this, uh, this main principle and then turn to its application. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something but does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God, notice a few things in your text. Look, look down at the text with me. Most of your translations probably have all of us possess knowledge in quotation marks. Okay? Remember this section of scripture, Paul is obviously writing a letter to the Corinthians, but he is responding to a previous letter. He is responding to previous, previous um, uh, claims and questions that they have, and it seems that they've come to questions about food and local idols. So what are they talking about? Well, some felt that they were just fine to take the meat, didn't violate their conscience, and others felt really guilty about it. We're going to look about that in just detailed in, in just a minute. But there's a principle here that Paul begins with, and it's that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And that is to say that knowledge by itself isn't sufficient. Listen to me here. Knowledge by itself, even if right, and could be in the category of true, which is to say truth by itself isn't sufficient. It must be applied in love. We cannot wield even the truth as a club. Knowledge and truth must be united with love. One example is two chemicals that are extremely dangerous on their own, but safe when combined together. Sodium and chlorine. Individually, sodium is a highly reactive metal. Right, I put it in water, it explodes. And chlorine is a toxic gas. But if you combine it together, it becomes table salt. Things isolated but coming together, they serve, they benefit, become safe for consumption. Love without truth is dangerous flattery. Listen to this. Love without truth. Love divorced from truth is dangerous, right? Explosive flattery. This is pervasive in our culture, right? In the name of love, and love is love and Love is love is love. You're defining the word by the word, which doesn't work at all. Um, but divorce from truth becomes extremely dangerous flattery. It has no anchor. There's no boundaries. There's no guardrails. And it, in fact, it has no reality based in truth. It is just nebulous feeling, and it is destructive in its trajectory. If you look at our culture that claims anything of love divorced from a truth or hard truth and the scripture's truth, the truth of reality and of God's will, God's word, it is in a path, though uh, though, though, you can decorate the car with love is all you need, it is a path uh, heading off a cliff, and you can see that playing out in love divorced from truth. And in the inverse, truth without love is immature and, according to Scripture, imperfect. Wielding the word of God, even as a club, we are not to be jerks for Jesus. That is not what we are called to be. And instead, Ephesians 4 reminds us that we are to teach the truth in love. Now pause for a second. That truth is embodied for us in Christ perfectly, magnificently. This whole principle this morning, that love love builds up, love serves. Love is not just an abstraction. It has potency. It is doing something. And when love came into the world, God himself, who is, by definition, love, he came wielding truth, right? Jesus Christ bearing out the truth of God and Remarkably, totally unexpected, is bending down, washing feet, is is the suffering servant. Love and truth is the inheritance of the Christian. It is the embodiment of Christ. So applied here into body life and amongst our brothers... It's not just a, a principle this morning that we will get to and a nice thought or a Christian application. It's sort of uh, an inheritance of the whole thing. Is that once we are ambassadors in Christ's family, we become embodiments of Him coming in to serve the weaker brother, serve them with truth, but benefit them and build them up in love, right? Not divorced, not shame. Not just I'm right, not just cold, calculated truth, but truth in love. Interestingly, it says that if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as yet he ought. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What is that? Sort of easy to pass over? What does it mean to be known by God? If anyone loves God, he's known by God. The phrase is repeated once more in another letter of Paul's in Galatians. Listen to this. It shows shines a little light. We're doing some sufficiency of Scripture, some Scripture interpreting Scripture this morning. Chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be, to be once more? Now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God? What, is, what does that mean? That means that the movement from knowledge to love is key. It's not a it's not just something in his syntax. It's not just something in his Linguistics, it's it's key. It's a key doctrinal point. It comes not to us by merely knowing more things about God, but by being known by God. It's similar to this. Listen to 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We've been born of God. Again in First John In this is love and God made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him and in this is this love not that we have loved God but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Knowledge which serves itself puffs up but love which knows Christ, serves through love. It's a difference between knowing theology and facts divorced from the Spirit. Does that make sense? The more we know, the more we're infiltrated with the Word of God, wonderful. But it is only as good as it is matched with the Spirit of God developing those into fruits of Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. And to a church that puts so much emphasis on knowledge of the word, which is totally right. If you were in Sunday school this morning, that was the entire ambition to say we are Bible people. But we have to go a step further here. More than being Bible people, we are spirit people. And they have to work in conjunction. We can have the word divorced from the spirit. Paul says later on in this chapter, look, if I came to you as an apostle, had all the tongues and all the gifts and all the things, if I could speak in the, uh, the language of men and angels, right? But have not love, I'm nothing. I'm a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. And the principle this morning for the Christian is am I my brother's keeper? If I have knowledge, and even if it's true, Is that all that matters? We certainly aren't asking to compromise the truth here. Paul is not even coming close to such a thing. But he is demanding. Love has a demand on truth's application. Love for your brother and service to Christ has a demand on the applications of truth. Love demands things of us. It is not okay to merely say, Lord, Lord, did I not know all of the correct doctrine? No, 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 no. If you love me, you will have knowledge of my commands. Nope. You will obey my commands. This text this morning is all about grabbing a hold of a question about a loophole. The Corinthians are writing, and we have this scenario, and our theology is right. Well, now what? Paul says we'll stop. Let's dive into the application here in just a second. The principle remains. You are your brother's keeper, and love demands that you wield truth and knowledge in service of those around you. For me, for someone who's I like to get my doctrine right, and I've got my family to deal with. It's very frustrating sometimes to have to look around to the needs of others. It just is fleshy, but it's such a common problem in my life. People are just in the way, right? They can just kind of handle your own thing. That's fine. That's great. Do do that. I have expectations. It's hard for me to labor to serve what this text is calling a weaker brother. How is this applied? How is this applied? Um, or excuse me, let's, let's back up just a minute. What is it that they claim to know? Let's, uh, let's clarify this quickly. Verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> therefore, as to the eating of food, you notice a therefore, by the way? Therefore, that's the principle, right? Love builds up. Excuse me. Love builds up. Knowledge can just puff up. So, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. So, notice again, probably in your text there are quotation marks right? And idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. That is, as they have likely written to Paul, sort of claiming is that, hey, we see the temples and we see the food and the festivals, but we know theologically, right, quoting Isaiah 41 and quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, the great sort of monotheistic uh, Jewish principles that there is only one true God. An idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. Their theology, in other words, is correct. The idols of the temple were not real and therefore they were free to eat meat offered to them or meat that they purchased that was previously dedicated to an idol. By the way, just some context in that, is that it was really hard to escape this particular practice. Okay? The temples were just ubiquitous within the life of the community. Everyone went to the temple. They saw it. It was the biggest place of commerce and trade. It was the biggest importer of meat. It was the biggest exporter of meat. After they would do their sacrifices and their rituals, they would sell the leftover meats. If you had a meal, most of the time it was sourced or came by the temple. And these people had lived their entire lives sort of entrenched in uh, not just eating that meat, but ha- having festivals and uh, sexual rituals with cult temple prostitutes and really believing those gods and fearing those gods for their crops, or their agricultural or, or, or pregnancy. They, they had lived kind of under this yoke of who these idols were. But now they had Come out of that into Christianity and they'd gotten their theology right. And some of the congregation said, oh yeah, that's just all superstition. You know, we're free to eat the meat. It's, you know, that's I can eat Aphrodite's brisket. You know, it's it's all good with me. I'm not gonna just eat demons. You know, I'm okay. But there were others in the congregation, maybe newer believers, whose Whose conscience was totally violated and, and held captive under that practice of the idolatry. Let's see what that means here. How do we? So how do we apply this love and this truth? How do they can get some of that theology right, and how do they apply it in love? Well, it's the last section, verses seven through thirteen, and I'll skip reading it, but draw out a few notes for your attention. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. All right. So not everybody has the the theology that you have with such security. Not everyone just sees it as worthless superstition anymore. They're plagued by this. Okay, so are we just bound by someone's conscience? Well, let's see what a sin is. The text goes on to say, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. They couldn't separate the food from the practice. Romans 14 gives a remarkable insight. Listen to this. Listen to this, because he's he's applying this um, sort of to why a bound conscience is indeed, in fact, a sin. In Romans 14, Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother, because we are our brother's keeper. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. He's affirming the principle. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Listen to that. That's an interesting thing. It's a sin if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Regarding this sort of food dynamic, you can have on the one hand a guy eating it and it's perfectly fine and another guy eating it and it's not. What's the difference? Faith. What is their faith in? The one man, he's maturing Christ, he's engaging in the world and he's taking this meat and whether I eat or drink, I'm doing it to the glory of God. Thanks be to God. <laughs> that was good. The other man, he, I'm not so sure about this. Uh, the, 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 the impulse to fear that God represented by this meat. I used to drink this and eat this as a kid. I, I know what this feels like. I, I'm not sort of mixed bag of syncretism, right? We can kind of have Jesus and, and this God too. I'm not really sure what to do and Conscience is troubled, right? So for him, it's not eating out of faith. It's sin. It's sin. Paul goes on to say, but take care that this right of yours. Listen, it's it's right of yours. You have it. Does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I was trying to think of illustrations of this all week. It's proven rather difficult. Because we don't sort of have the same set of um, variables that they had um, in that there was just such a ubiquitous cult within the city, a lot of people in our congregation coming out of that particular cult and then having daily body life interact with those cult practices, but now we call them okay. It's kind of a unique set of circumstances, but I think I can come up with a few. Largely centered around, for, for my sake, I mean, ways we engage in the culture. Which could easily be identified as a cult, right? All sorts of things. I'll tell you one. I'll tell you one where this is a an illustration where maybe a mature brother did something that that caused me to sort of stumble. It's a really odd example, but we were studying uh, the life of um, Augustine or Augustine, or if you go to seminary, Augustine, right? And we were studying how he is a man who had been involved in all this sexual sin. And that was his big thing was lust and uh, enjoying the temple prostitutes and, and then coming out of that and being a man of God. And I'm a young seminary guy or a college guy and also very much battling the flesh, right, trying to win that fight over the flesh. And I had a professor who said, you know what? Well, you need to go watch this documentary video about the life of Augustine, great, I did. But whatever reason, the uh, production wanted to reenact the temple <laughs> prostitutes uh, with full nudity. I was, a, I was shocked. I was shocked that as, a, like, as an assignment, I was sent to go watch this movie. And the girl he was struggling with was now the girl I was struggling with. <laughs> and this mature believer had, had put this sort of stumbling block, and maybe it was totally fine for him. Maybe in his maturity, he's, he's able to take in art and thought and, and could see some things that as a mature believer, I couldn't. I, I was sort of very similar to this text. I remember being so confused by I wanted to be edified and encouraged and strengthened by men of God who, 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 were, who were telling me the story of victory over sexual immorality and illustrating it with Augustine and then illustrating it too well. Um, I also think I've done this myself uh, by, by mocking theological positions of being a rookie theologian. You know, I, I can remember a, a time sitting around the dinner table with one of my relatives who's uh, from a Catholic background, and, and I remember just sort of uh, knowing a few things about uh, the Reformation, right? Just really giving this guy, a, you know, mockery of his stupid beliefs. But I had wielded the truth as an idiot. And I remember the the sourness with which our conversation ended um, and feeling that I had wielded theology that was technically correct, completely inappropriately. Uh, I was brash. uh, I was arrogant. I certainly was maybe telling the truths of God but not displaying the love of Christ. Don't get me wrong. There are ways to be truth will always come off blunt and there needs to be some strength behind that that doesn't mean you have to say the truth in a presentable way that's so soft it never offends but it must be done bearing the the marks of love the marks of love have a concern and a sacrificial position and posture as it tells the truth it's a similar situation as a parent to children, this scenario. Um, when I read this text and read about the weaker brother, I typically just go, well, he needs to mature. <laughs> I mean, come on, like, the theology is right, just eat the meat. But apparently that, that pressure, that impatience is wrong. It's better as the more mature person, right? And that's the thing, that's the the dynamic we don't get. The more more mature person is like Christ. The more mature person is self-sacrificial, even in the face of their own rights. A parent often has to change the dynamic as they raise and encourage and build up children. We're frequently changing our schedules. We're frequently changing sometimes our menus. We're frequently changing things as they go from infant to toddler to hopefully mature. Hopefully they mature up to eat the things that we eat, but sometimes they get a pouch. That's okay. Sometimes we pay deference to those that we have an investment to build up and encourage, not just to shame them or even push them, unnecessarily into sin in violation of their conscience. Others here might be use of alcohol, images, themes that we promote, and the like. Now, question mark. I think I've got to clarify here. Are we to be held hostage to the weakness of others, right? This is an interesting question. Are we just to be sort of yoked by the, the weakest person in the room, right? So they eat chicken nuggets. Now everybody's eating chicken nuggets, right? Well... Some people do that. Parents, please don't do that. Um, Colossians 2.16 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, we stand before the Lord. We don't stand under the yoke of the weakest brother in the room. Right? But we do pay attention to him. We do have an eye towards him, it, And it's an eye to build up. Verse 12 of this text says, Thus, by doing so, we sin against our brothers and wound their conscience when it is weak. It is as if we are sinning against Christ. Matthew 18 reminds us, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck. Paul always remembered when he was on the road to Damascus? What did Jesus say to him? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? All right? So we have to remember when in relation to others, our uh, pressure or um, indifference to our brothers in causing sin, it is as if we are wounding Christ. Christ says, I am am with the weaker brother. It's a tough pill to swallow. If you're you're with me, and you know me, and I know you, and you're growing in real maturity, love, you you think you're mature because you have all this knowledge. It's the the real one who's mature has the practice, not just the orthodoxy, the orthopraxy. And the real one who's mature is acting like me. Be patient. Be steadfast. what 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 did we already quote this morning that we know of God? He's Abounding in steadfast love. What is is the story of scriptures, if not in every scenario, no matter how cool and strong and tough David is or or Moses or anyone else, is is God's patience that I forget? It's God's patience. I want to be like God. Sometimes I just want to be a good theologian or like a good Bible character. Forget that. Be like God. And He is a quality that I. It doesn't come natural patience and building up. With an eye to other people. Last verse: Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And here we have simply the laying down of rights. Find it interesting too. So, say this just practically: what, what would this have done in the community of the Corinthians? So, say you're 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 eating. It would have been really hard to avoid, by the way. You're eating with brothers, you're in the temple, and you're not eating the meat. Hey, hey man, what's, what's going on? You can kind of say a couple of different things of why you're not eating. Um, the stronger brother's totally free to eat. He can do that, sort of take part and not violate his conscience at all. But what would their non-eating communicate? If they said, well, I'm not eating meat because they, they feared it was too honoring to the idol, it would be, in a sense... Legitimizing the idol, which is something that they didn't believe. Right, so you don't want to say that. You don't want to say, "Well, I'm not eating this because I serve a rival god than this god." Well, you want to get your theology right, and there is no other idol. There is no other real God. So lowercase G. Right, these are just demons, or I mean, there's only one Lord. But if they got it right. And if not eating was in service to a weaker brother, listen to how that would have sounded amongst the community of non-believers. Hey, why are you not eating? Well, there is only one true God. But my brother, seeing me do that, he believes that he's still trying to, to wrestle with this idol. And I want to encourage him that there is only one true God. You both get the theology right and demonstrate the practice right. Your testimony is both correct theology and a demonstration to your neighbor of what that theology has done in your life. Namely, look out for your brother. Have concern for someone outside of yourself. The stronger brother can swim in the current, but by doing so, if he lures in brothers who can't swim in it, the stronger brother therefore has a responsibility to stay on the shore does it make sense? even if he can swim in the current a pleasure or an indulgence which may be the ruin of someone else is not a pleasure but a sin the law of love is clear do not sacrifice your brother on the altar of your liberty do not sacrifice your brother on the altar of your liberty which is our inheritance in Christ we are to seek not our own interests, but the interests of others. So the question asked by Cain, am I my brother's keeper, is it answered by us, yes, we are. Christ is teaching us not simply about food laws, but about how to love. Christ identifies with the weaker brother, laying down his rights to the throne in sacrificial service to us. So what Philippians 2 means by he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of obedience, even death on a cross. But we need this kind of service towards others. So as we enter into 2024, and we sort of set our sights this morning as a congregation on what his vision and mission and ministry look like, we need First Timothy men. We need Titus 2 women. We need servants. Paul has reminded the Corinthians over and over again, this isn't about being served, but it is an inheritance of service. We need eyes that by the grace of God look not to our own interests only, but can look up and for many of us older, maybe more mature Christians, or maybe even older Christians, which hopefully they, they mean the same thing, right? The older we get, the more mature we get. It means that we begin to look up and look around and look down and how do we serve and build up. And we build up by knowledge, but we do it by knowledge in love. Let's keep our eyes open. This is how we grow in grace as we are our brother's keeper, especially as members here at Covenant of Grace.